This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Well, it is the moment we have all been waiting for. The attachment episode. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Tanya Kotler. We met at MomFest. If you remember from my Instagram, I went to this event downtown Toronto. She was doing a Q&A there with Alana. And I was talking to her afterwards and we started talking about our training and psychology. And it turns out that she has the exact same training as I do. She is a clinical psychologist. I was an academic psychologist, but the same training in attachment, the same training in reflective functioning. And it's such a niche area that it was shocking to meet somebody else that has the exact same training that I didn't go to school with. So it was very exciting. And we decided at that moment that she needs to come on the podcast and talk about attachment. A huge topic on TikTok right now is, like on my TikTok anyways, is attachment and sleep training. So we have a very detailed discussion about what is attachment, what is the difference between attachment science and attachment parenting, does sleep training affect the attachment bond between parent and child, how to foster a secure attachment in your child because everybody asks that question. Every time I put up a video about attachment, people have questions in the comments like, I'll always remember this one comment that I got and it was a mom of twins and she was scared to not have a good attachment bond with her child because she has twins. And she was like, sometimes I can't respond to both of them at the same time. So one might be crying when I'm trying to, you know, feed or address an issue with the other child. So we get into the details of attachment and what really matters. Dr. Tanya Kotler is an adult and child clinical psychologist. She practices in Toronto, but obviously does a lot of things virtually as well. I will have her website, her Instagram handle in the episode notes if you want to find her online. She is a delight to listen to. I love the way she explains everything. Get out a notepad get a pen because you're going to want to take some notes. Save this episode if you can. Download it. Share it with your friends. Everybody needs to listen to this episode. So without further ado, please welcome my friend, Dr. Tanya Kotler to the Mom Room Podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Tanya Kotler and It's interesting. So I met her in person. I had seen her on Instagram. I guess I should talk to you. I've seen you previously on Instagram through Mom Halo. And then I met her at Mom Fest. She was giving like a little Q&A with Alana. And when we talked afterwards, I discovered that she has the exact same training as I do, which is wild because it's so niche. So, 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 so niche. So she did the same attachment training. She did the reflective functioning training. And I was just, I was in awe. And I was like, you have to come on the podcast. She works in attachment in her actual everyday job, whereas I don't, which is why I'm always uncomfortable when people are like, tell us about attachment. I'm like, no. (laughs) So this is perfect. I'm so excited to have this conversation. But to start, I thought you could just tell us about yourself, your training, and a little bit about your clinic in Toronto. Sure. And first of all, I was so excited when I met you because it was a similar kind of fangirl moment, not only because I mean, come on, you know, the mom room podcast and all the things, but also because I don't meet a lot of people whose PhD or research really focus on that aspect of attachment, which we can get into. But 
It doesn't happen very often. So I am a PhD psychologist and my research absolutely focused as early as my master's on the science of attachment. And we'll talk about what that is. And I looked at the relationship of attachment to everything from death anxiety to emotion regulation and empathy through my doctoral work. But I was in a clinical psychology program. So I was also learning to become a clinical psychologist or, you know, to become a therapist. So my clinical practice really focused also on my interest in attachment. And because of that, I kind of have a unique specialization where I'm both a child and adult psychologist, which is relatively rare in Canada. And the reason for that was because I came at it from this real interest in the parent-child bond. And I kept not understanding how could you specialize in only one side of the relationship, especially when you understand how attachment forms and how it takes two to tango. It just didn't make sense to me. You need to actually understand the mind of both. And so I came to it actually first as what somebody might say, a child psychologist. I was focusing more of my clinical training on children. And I worked with children actually primarily hospitalized children. You know, in Bronx and Brooklyn, I was training in New York and children who were in inpatient psychiatric units. And a lot of what I kept being so struck by was a level of trauma that and lived experience and developmental trauma. These, you know, these eight-year-old children that were now hospitalized had experienced. And I would get really pulled into their charts in some way to the stories. I'm kind of a story lover. And they would get pulled into the stories and then it would be the stories of their mothers and the stories of their fathers and their grandmothers and the generation upon generation of attachment trauma that I would start to be pulled to. And so I kind of veered while I continued to work with children, which I still do. I veered to wanting to work with the parents on their own lived experience. And eventually, you know, fast forward a decade, I got trained in a unique therapy that there's not a lot of people in Toronto who do called parent-infant psychotherapy. And that's really working with mothers or fathers and their infants, babies, really babies under one. And it's not woo-woo and weird. You know, I'm not sprinkling dust or something. But I'm really trying to help in, you know, a very mindfulness type approach of being present and centered with the mother or the father and their baby. And there's a lot that can be done, which is pretty hopeful and amazing in helping to change the developmental outcomes and the attachment outcomes in this relationship. So there's ways to help in the here and now kind of break that cycle of potentially attachment trauma. Would that be considered kind of like a preventative thing? I absolutely see it that way. By being trained as an adult or and child psychologist, it kind of positions me in this unique place where somebody can call me and just say, "My, I'm a horrible mother and my child hates me. And I can hear that and go, okay, well, there's multiple points of entry here and I'm trained in all of them. So maybe I can see you, depending how old that child is with your child. Maybe I'm going to see child alone. Maybe I'm going to see you alone. I won't do all both due to boundaries, but I'm going to pick one and then I'm going to know how to work with you. And so if the child is really young and I'm hearing a depressed mother who's depressed because her four-month-old infant doesn't want to feed and she has taken that on as because he hates her, then there's a lot of work we can do in the early relationship to help make sense of why is that story? Why, where did that story come from? You know, help mom with empathy come to this place of seeing her, the child in front of her while she reflects on, you know, the players of her past that may have contributed to the reason she's now having that story with her child. So attachment theory is what our training is. Is that the same as attachment science? I noticed you call it attachment science. Yes. And there's a reason I call it attachment science, which we could get into. Okay. Can you explain? Because yeah, we're going to talk about the difference between attachment science and attachment parenting, which is so funny because I don't even think I've, I had heard about attachment parenting until recently. Like I didn't know that that was a thing. And I guess it's because I'm so immersed in the other world, like of attachment theory and attachment science. So yeah, what is the difference between attachment science and attachment theory? First, we'll start there. 
Well, first of all, I love that you are doing that because I just said attachment about 10 times and probably lost 10 listeners who thought of the attachment (laughs) parenting version. And that's like a party ruiner. So if you stayed on good, because that's not what I'm talking about. So in my practice, for example, we focus on really attachment theory or attachment science, myself and my team members. And we work in individual and group therapy and teach workshops all about this. And it's different from attachment parenting. And I'll get into what attachment science or theory is in a moment. But it's different because primarily because it's science-based, which is why I use that word science. It's 60 years of evidence-based theory on the parent-child attachment relationship. Attachment parenting is so much easier to describe what it is for a moment because it's not that. It's quite shaming, actually. It's a style of parenting that may work for you. However, if it doesn't, it's a prescribed way of parenting that is set out as though it's the holy grail. So the way to parent in order to build a secure attachment relationship with your child, and it's actually scientifically not correct. So some of the behaviors that are described, while they are beautiful, amazing bonding behaviors, if they work for you, breastfeeding, co-sleeping, baby wearing, they are not the one-way street to building a secure attachment relationship with your child. So whether you do them or don't do them, that's not the science, okay? That's not what leads you there. And so it's really harmful, actually, because it can get many mothers, especially, or fathers who are in a very vulnerable state where they're reading everything they can get their hands on. How do I make this child, you know, confident, healthy little person and then big person in this world and a kind person? And how do I build a safe relationship with them? Because they hear the word attachment and then they see I've got to breastfeed, co-sleep and baby wear. Like, okay, I just got to do those three things. And those three things, excuse my French, I swear a lot, are really fucking hard, actually. And so it's two problems. One, well, what if you can't do those things? Is that just, you know, there you go. You've written off a secure attachment relationship with your child. No. And B, even if you can, and they're lovely, amazing things, that's actually not the all of it. Those are just behaviors. So the science of attachment is way more nuanced. It's actually way more hopeful as a science. It is about the very unique intricate, delicate, musical relationship that develops between every parent-child pair. So it can be different, you with your child and me with mine. And it is based on a sense of what's called felt security. And so what attachment parenting did is they took proximity seeking, this idea of being close, proximity meaning close, and they made it very literal. So literal closeness, baby wearing, co-sleeping, breastfeeding, or chest feeding. Whereas in the actual science, the idea of proximity is not only in body and constantly in physical space, it's in mind as well. So feeling felt. I don't need to be necessarily wearing you to have your mind in mind, right? And actually the importance of the child feeling seen and known and understood and safe is way more important than feeling, you know, worn in a baby carrier. And it's it's way more nuanced. And we'll get into how, how one does it and what the science has taught us, but it's way more nuanced. The other thing is that the last kind of differentiation I'll make that's really important is attachment parenting talks about singular behaviors, like we said, whereas the science of attachment or attachment theory is really focused on the collection of experience moment to moment over time. So, you know, baby wearing for three months is not what creates a secure attachment. It's all that collection of millisecond to millisecond. Anyone who's a parent knows how many milliseconds there are in a freaking day. It's all of those milliseconds together that build the attachment relationship. So that over time is really important. So this leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask about, because this is what happens in my life. I put out a TikTok that's like something about, you know, responding to your child, you know, great for attachment. And then like two days later, I put out a thing where I'm like defending someone who was getting like, so shamed for sleep training. And I felt so bad for this woman. So I make a video like standing up for her and being like, you know, 
And then people are like, how do you have training and attachment and you're saying sleep training is okay, you're supposed to respond to your child. And then I'm like, oh, man, Tanya, you want to come on the podcast and talk about this? (laughs) (laughs) Because like, it's hard to explain, like you were just saying, it's not these single events, but people want to hang on to that. So often when I put out a video about attachment, in the comments, you'll see so many moms be like, well, I have twins and sometimes I can't pick up the one because I'm trying to feed the other one. And like, is that okay? And I'm like, oh my God, people are taking this so in the wrong way. And I wish I could explain it better. I have a hard time. The best way I can explain it is just like, it's over time. It's like a ton of interactions and just like your overall relationship. It's not these single events. So can you speak to that just a little bit? Absolutely. And first of all, you know, I'll get reactions to this and please do. I was once on a podcast, a sleep training podcast specifically, talking about sleep and I'll circle back to it to answer your question. But I got a lot of backlash and I ironically kind of appreciate the conversation because I become really curious about, wait, what question are you asking? What vantage point are you coming from? So that I can try to explain the vantage point I'm coming from and maybe help one person start to see it a little differently because we are existing in a culture where part of parenting It is so prescribed. There's so many ways to do it, which plays on the anxiety of parents who are trying to do it all. And so the combination of here are the 50 ways to do it and I just need to know how to do it is actually really detrimental. You know, 20 years ago, while we didn't actually name postpartum depression yet, the benefit, and that was truly problematic, the benefit was that there was a little bit less prescribed ways to parent. It, the idea that we parented on intuition was a little bit more accepted than it is today. And actually, that was the right thing, that intuition thing. That was the right thing, not all these prescribed ways of being. A lot of the, you know, the important of attachment signs before we get into sleep training specifically, and I'll apply it, is also this idea that because it's relationships over time and it's a moment-to-moment interaction, there's actually not only okay if there are mismatches, mistakes, ruptures, as I've seen them called, it's not only that it's okay, but that those are quite significantly important. And they are important because They are part of how we as a unit build hope. So if I can get angry with you, if I can tell you not right now I'm with your sibling, I'm a mother of three, I say that 10 times a day. If I say not right now, I can't, maybe even impatiently, one second. But then I say, sorry, honey, your sister was talking to me, your brother was talking to me, I couldn't talk to all of you at once. I'm here now. I'm sorry I snapped at you. What I've just done, and that's called repair, is I've named it, but I've moved from that mismatch back to a match. And I've allowed our relationship to begin to make the building blocks of hope. We can move from a negative to a positive experience together. We can regulate ourselves when things go wrong and come back to balance, which we can talk about, you know, if we talk about nervous system today. So we can tolerate frustration and it's okay to have moments of mismatch. The relationships are filled with them. And the science of attachment shows us actually 70% of secure attachment relationships are mismatched. 30% are that perfectly in sync, right? So For the parent who asked you, is it okay I have twins? Absolutely. It's not only okay. We actually want some of these, you know. So give yourself a pat on the back when you repair and then after you've had a rupture. It's not just a, whew, thank goodness I repaired. It's like, great, I had a rupture because I'm human. And it's part of the attachment relationship. So that perfection striving actually can be quite detrimental for our children and for ourselves. Let's loop to the sleep training on that note. Sleep training is a really complicated question. And that's because I think we're asking the wrong question. We're asking, is it good for baby? And if we come 
with the question, is it good for baby? We're going to have a lot of noise because when you train a baby who would happily early on wants to be secure and comfort comforted in that kind of little heart shaped spot in between your bosom, if you're, you know, a woman, then it will be really difficult for that child in the moments where you don't embrace them into that spot. We know this by science, evolutionary science. So yes, if you're going to take it from the angle of, is it good for the child? Nope. In that moment, it probably isn't the best. It's not what they want. It's a mismatch. They rather be held by you. The question though, is not, is it good for the child? It's actually the wrong question. It's where the whole thing gets messed up. Because the question should be, if it's about the attachment relationship, is it good for the pair? We need to centralize the pair. Is it good for the unit? Is it good for the mother and baby? Is it good for dad and baby? And that answer will depend on the unit. So if you are a mother who, I was this mother, who with sleep deprivation, as many of us will be, have a slow form of torture and we can't function. And we might be more angry, more anxious, for some, much more depressed. When depressed, that means you're less responsive. You're in a deflated, kind of defeated, flat affect, meaning not responsive state. Well, that's going to be pretty scary for your child if you're in that state moment to moment, day after day. Remember, we talked about collection. So if a sleep training is, you know, three nights to one week, whatever, of mismatch, that's a really short, succinct period of time to the negative impact weeks and months and years of sleep deprivation could be on the relationship if the parent needs sleep. So it's re- to me, it's really the wrong question. Here and there, I have parents who've heard me speak about sleep training and they are embarrassed the other way. They say, I co-sleep. Is that bad? Absolutely not. I mean, it's not by no means am I standing here or sitting here or whatever, whatever speaking here, saying that that is an error. If it works for you and your family, if you are someone who's going to feel so overwhelmed with anxiety by the idea of training and you're much calmer having your child in your bed and you're willing to have your child in bed until whenever and the whole idea of, of that feels more comforting to you and it works for your family then great, then, then the question doesn't apply to you. Then it's good for your family not to train. To me, we're getting in trouble with the sleep training thing because we're asking it wrong. And we're getting in trouble in general with attachment because we're asking it wrong. We're constantly talking about infantocentric viewpoints, what is good for the child. And that actually doesn't make sense if we understand attachment it needs to be good for the pair. The mother needs to feel recognized. The mother needs to feel seen. The mother needs to feel safe, as does the infant, and actually more so sometimes in order for her to regulate her infant. I think this is my favorite little spiel of any episode of the entire podcast. Like that was phenomenal. I have never, I like have tears in my eyes because it's like, it's like the idea that the mom doesn't matter. And like you said, it's infant centric when it's a unit thing that goes for so many things in parenting, you know, not just the sleep training thing. Oh my God. So many moms are going to be like, rewind, replay that again, send it to everybody. I know like that was such a great explanation for that. Like, I love that. I am so glad you feel that way. Cause it's hard to your point. It's really hard to explain this. And It's kind of scary to say, hey, when did mom become invisible? We need to change this. Why is this the way we're thinking? You're you're sort of unique when you do that, especially when you also work with infants. But it matters. It really matters. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. 
And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. And I think it's hard for moms when someone is coming at them from an infant centric, you know, argument like towards them, they kind of get their backs up and they're like, oh my God, am I doing something wrong? But it's like, no, take a step back and look at the whole picture. Because like you said, it's like the day-to-day interactions. It's not just those single moments. So yeah, that was great. Can we talk a little bit about like the baby wearing and like the co-sleeping, the things that are kind of promoted in attachment parenting? Like you were saying, it's great for some families if it works for them, but I have heard, and maybe this is not correct. Well, like you were saying before, like it can kind of, when you're striving for this like perfection and, you know, the constant baby wearing and you're so focused on that if it's not working for you and you're still stressing yourself out trying to do those things, how can that be detrimental? It's such a good question. And there's probably so many ways to answer it. So first of all, if it's a prescribed behavior and we're quote unquote religiously following it, then I already hear that there's a degree of anxiety, right? I already hear that there's a degree of worry that, all of us have. It's a very normal response to parenting. It's one of the most anxiety-provoking experiences. Here is a little person, take it home, him or her home, and protect them, keep them safe, and raise them into a human that is good and happy. And like, fuck, really? And like, do it after, you know, you've been up for 26 hours, potentially. So, and all the ways we bring, I should, I should be cautious there and, and sidebar, all the ways we become parents, regardless. The idea that this child is now yours to raise is really, really overwhelming. And so we actually really cling to, you know, the 10 ways to do something because it controls us, it organizes us, it gives us something to, you know, strive towards. Okay, if I just do this, you know, feed my child, you know, the spinach before the cereal or the dietitian's listening and saying that's the wrong order, or the cereal before the spinach. But 
you know, if I just do that, they'll never be a picky eater. So if I just breastfeed or co-sleep, or baby, they'll never have a, you know, an insecure attachment. And so the guilt spiral, if it's not working for you, you have a back problem, you can't baby wear, you don't even have to have a back problem. It's hurt. It hurts a lot of people. It's heavy. I can't, I can't wear a baby all day long. You have difficulty breastfeeding. You have, some people will have a letdown reflux that will actually cause anxiety. So you can't, you get too anxious when you breastfeed. Your milk doesn't come in. You're somebody who needs sleep. And for other reasons that we didn't even get into, maybe struggle with the constant touch. And so having someone sleep in your bed, you may not be somebody who can handle that constant touch of somebody on your body, on your nervous system while you're trying to be in that safety of your sleep. So it's so complicated. And if you can't do these prescribed specific behaviors, you're going to enter into a narrative or maybe it will already feed an existing narrative that I'm, I'm failing as a mother in some way. And that is so detrimental to your relationship for so many reasons, but I'm going to highlight two. One, because you're going to lose the ability to actually be present and compassionate with the child that's actually in front of you. You're going to begin to be stuck in your head. Renee's phone is ringing, everybody. We're gonna you know what? It. And you know what? Just like a side note, because I'm not taking this out. The only reason we have a home phone is because my freaking husband's job. And it's like, oh, we need to have a home phone just in case his cell phone doesn't work. And I hate it. Every time it goes off, I get raging anxiety. Speaking of anxiety. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> it's totally okay. And now we have to talk about my yeah. anxiety triggers, which is like when my mind gets off track. So hold on. So, you know, you're going to get pulled away from your present moment into your mind and not the child in front of you. And part of building a secure attachment is the ability to be present with compassion. It's, it's really a mindfulness exercise in many ways. It's seeing, recognizing what's in front of you. A lot of the ways we build our attachment is narrating, oh, look at you. You're, you know, building those blocks, one, two, three, or, you know, you are angry. You're stomping your feet. You don't want to go to school right now, right? So a lot of the ways we actually build that bond is narrating. We're changing a baby's diaper and he's on that cold, you know, changing table and they're like the tiny little body with their, you know, like all red and they're like doing that cry where their limbs are firm and every mother can probably see that image in their head and you're going, oh, it's so cold. You don't like when I change your diaper, right? We're narrating constantly. That's one of the ways, you know, to go to how do we do it? One of the ways we form a secure attachment is we help them feel recognized, seen. And so if we're in our head with our narrative, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm a horrible mother. We're going to miss. We're not going to be able to narrate. We're not going to be able to be present with them. And we're breaking ourselves down so we are actually not going to be able to take joy or delight in the relationship. And part of a secure relationship is also that kind of mutual recognition. So when our child smiles at us and reaches for us and, all the, and laughs and all those moments that we're supposed to take joy in, we might miss them for ourselves too, which can cause a whole trickle effect, right, in terms of depression and anxiety and, and so on. And so... To me, the risk of thinking there's one way to do it is, is exponential, really. I'm really happy that early on, I learned to do what worked best for us. And oftentimes it wasn't what, you know, like, for example, I bought all the books on baby led weaning and I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to do this. The first time I gave him a big chunk of, I think it was sweet potato, anxiety like through the roof I have such a fear of choking and it doesn't matter if the research tells me that you know baby led weaning doesn't you know cause more choking than purees or whatever I didn't care I was like I don't want to not like you were saying enjoy feeding my child because I have to feed him a lot and so if I'm in this constant state of like dreading the next time he's going to eat and a lot of people feel this way about breastfeeding as well you know, like every day that's happening. I don't want to live like that. Like, I don't want to go through his newborn days, his infant days, his early toddler days, 
feeling that way. Because like you said, it takes away from the just being connected, being in the moment, being able to narrate what's going on and being happy, being joyful. So yeah, if people are listening, that's my one thing. Like I wish people would be confident to choose and like make decisions in their parenting based on what works best for them and their family and not worry about, you know, oh, baby led weaning. Like I didn't do baby led weaning and I can eat fine. And I'm, you know, like so many things, especially in early parenting when kids are really young, there's these things and it's very black and white thinking. It's like, this is the way to do it. And this way is bad. There's no gray area. There's no like, looking at people's situations or considering the parents like, no, it's like, this is good. This is bad. That's it. And it's not that way at all. So, and you know, part of that is also so important to understand. So we're thinking about in terms of behaviors and things you do, but that also applies to ways you feel. So, you know, this black and white thinking that says there's prescribed ways of doing can also get us all caught up in there's prescribed ways of feeling, right? Like take the joy, for example. Yes, mothers will feel joy and bliss. But that notion that because I'm going to love this little we human so freaking much, the notion that a secure attachment, for example, would mean that that love would therefore protect me or absolve me of all negative emotions forever. I will never feel again. I thought that. Anger, anxiety, like I will be at peace in my love affair with my child. And so then you're like this little monster who just colored all over my wall. Oh my God, how dare I be angry because they're just little and they're so adorable, but they colored all over my wall and I'm human. And so this idea that there's prescribed ways of behaving or prescribed ways of feeling and that all the nuance of humanity gets lost in parenting, is really a problem, right? So good mothers, good enough mothers, just good mothers, quite blankly, feel complex emotions and that's okay. That's part of that rupture and repair of a relationship. And they will do things. Some of the things they will do will maybe fit in that black or white. And a lot of them will not. You know, you see in movies and on TV where, you know, the woman has the baby and then it's just like crying and overjoyed. And, you know, everyone talks about like, that was the best day ever. And I remember thinking, when Milo was born and my sister's listening to this, she was in the room. Like when they handed him to me, I was just kind of like, all right, cool. Like this is the guy that was <laughs> inside <laughs> in, me the whole time. In my belly. Yeah. And I did not have that feeling at all. And it, for me, it took a while. It was like this slow build as I got to know him and bond with him. But like there was no instant feeling at all. I was just kind of like, all right, I just did that. And that's it. Well, your nervous system, right? And we can get into how our nervous systems work, but our nervous systems are all going to be different and what triggers our nervous system. And for some of us, you know, a moment like birth might trigger a real shutdown state. A lot of us actually, what's considered freeze, it just went through, you know, a real scary thing for some of us. And so social connection to be in that state where I could just be bonded with my baby, vasal vagal, which is called on a kind of brain, brainy level. Well, not all of us are going to be able to bounce right into that state right away. We might be in a little bit of that shutdown mode. And how often in parenting, certain parts of our nervous system get triggered. You know, it's really noisy and we might be really sensitive to sound due to, you know, life experiences. And so we might get activated, that sympathetic nervous system, right? Our hands might sweat and our heart starts to beat because our kid is yelling. And to expect that I shouldn't get into an activated state is to expect our nervous system not to work in the way that it's evolutionarily worked for, you know, generations and generations. So it's not possible. Hey, 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 hey. 
This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. That's like the message of this episode. We're human. And human things happen to us. Okay, I wanted to get into why it's so important for us to reflect on our own attachment narrative. Because when you put that in the email as like a topic that we could talk about, I was like, yes, when I did the attachment training in Minnesota, it was like super intensive. And like we would code transcripts just in case people are wondering, we were learning how to code these transcripts. And when you are coding them, you use different colors. And I was so immersed in it that I would dream all night of like coloring papers and stuff. It was wild. <laughs> it was like a boot camp. But totally what it like a did for me, it was a boot camp. I remember being so I felt so lucky that I got to do that training because for me, it was life-changing. Like I learned things that I will take with me for the rest of my life. It made me think about my childhood, my relationship with my parents, like things that my parents did or how I felt as a child that I never would have thought of had I not done that training. And so like random things where I forget what they were teaching us about, but I was like, wow, my mom, like growing up when I was in elementary school, if I got in trouble at school with like a teacher, I had an attitude, like, you know, my mom, like I would still get in trouble and I didn't want her to like find out like if they were calling my mom or I got sent to the office. Like, it's not like I was okay with it, but I always felt like my mom was on my side always. And like, that is at the time, of course, I didn't think of it at all. I was just like, oh, okay. But now I'm like, wow, that is really special. And I don't know how she did it. And she didn't do it intentionally. I'm sure she's going to listen to this episode and be like, really? Okay. (laughs) But like, I felt like she was on my side. And like little things like that, I started to think about. And I just felt so lucky to be able to do that training. So long story short, why is it important for us to reflect on our own 
attachment and our own childhood before we become a parent and how it affects our parenting once we become parents? So when I talk about what builds a secure attachment or how, I talk about four R's. And the first R, we talked about some of the other ones today already, you know, recognizing, which is more than just seeing, um, having them really feel felt. And we do that with narrating. We talked about rupture. We talked about repair. And so the first one, which we didn't talk about yet. And so you, you know, loving, lovely, you know, Renee brought right, brought it right in without knowing how I tend to talk about attachment, brought in reflection. And to me, reflection is almost the overarching umbrella. It's, it's the most important one. It's what's going to allow everything underneath it to be, you know, allow recognition, allow us to be in that present compassionate place with what's in front of us. It's what's going to allow us to, when we rupture, repair our ruptures, to be present with our ruptures, to not go into a guilt spiral and to say, you know, I'm sorry that that happened and move on. So reflection is key. And the only thing I would reframe from what Renee, you said, is that it needs to happen before we come be parents. You know, ideally, actually, uh, when mothers come to me and they are pregnant or they are planning to adopt or go through the process of surrogacy or they're going through an infertility process, it's a great time to be beginning to reflect. But many will come to me, like I said, when I'm doing parent-infant work and the reflection will really start with the baby right in front of them. And that's okay. Sometimes that becomes what awakens us to the need to reflect. And I see that as beautiful and not a problem or a flaw. And what a wonderful opportunity to allow the little child in front of you to become your mirror to help you look backwards. Why we reflect is that feelings get stored in the body the good ones and the not so good ones. And so here you're telling a beautiful story that you have in a organized way that's actually an attachment story, right? And it's really about your the secure base function of your mother and how you could rely on her, how it felt safe with her, that you could trust her to respond in a loving, soothing, supportive way. And, you know, in getting in trouble with the school and getting sent to the office, right? And it's this little anecdote, but in it, we hear the secure base function, the idea that I could regulate, maybe I'll be upset that I got sent to the office, but that through my mother, through the relationship, I could regulate those feelings, that I didn't get scared or, you know, avoid telling her or act out more or whatever. For some of us, we may, and many people who've experienced developmental attachment trauma in particular, and I could define that briefly, we might not even know how that got stored in our body or how that affects us until we become parents and it kind of gets re-triggered up. So when we talk about trauma, we are talking, in, or when I am talking about trauma, I am talking about the subjective, the personal experience of having felt unsafe. And it is not about it being, you know, what I sometimes say, the capital T versus a lowercase t. So the capital T trauma being what somebody else would refer to as traumatic. It's a singular event. It's a car accident or a fire, which are absolutely, if you felt unsafe, traumatic. But the lowercase t's, there's a lot more of them in a sentence. And they are the chronic, repeated experiences where you may have felt unsafe over and over again in development. An angry parent, a parent who lashed out a lot and didn't repair, a parent who maybe was very unpredictable in their lashing out, for example. You know, we'll stick with that just to not get too complicated. And so over time, your nervous system may have stored a way of responding, a way of reacting. So I'm not going to get into all those ways, but let's talk about, for example, just the fight flight, my heart beats and I get flush faced. The blood runs into the middle of my body and my limbs might get cold, right? It's kind of the survival instinct, the same one that we would have if we had a cyber tooth tiger in the forest. Well, we want to know that we have these experiences, many, maybe many of them that we can get triggered by. Because for example, in our home, 
If it's really loud, to the example I was using before, and our kids are screaming and maybe you know, the fan on the oven is on. There's like a lot going on. And I suddenly feel like I need to run away from here. Or I start yelling. That is stored in my body. That is a sympathetic nervous system responding to what feels like a genuine threat. And so in order to begin to understand and learn to calm our nervous system, we need to know our triggers. And part of how we know our triggers is we start to compassionately look at the lens of how we were raised. How did we feel in our attachment relationship? Did we feel safe? Did we feel seen and known? And we speak to ourselves with loving compassion if we didn't. And we look at you know, what did I need to do? What kind of behaviors and ways of acting and feeling did I learn in order to try to get the love I needed? Do I still use some of those? And so this often needs to be done with a therapist, with a trained trauma-informed, attachment-informed therapist who can really help you because none of us are good at looking at ourselves alone most of the time, who can really help you reflect on your own early attachment so it doesn't play out with your child. And that can kind of get expanded more and more. You know, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about the parent who calls and says, my my son hates me. Was that a narrative that has possibly come from an early relationship where even just facial expressions, you begin to read them very quickly because you're hypervigilant. It's like a lighthouse searching for boats and you're quickly identifying potential anger and seeing it as personalized Once upon a time, maybe you had to do that because maybe your parent would get angry really quickly. And so you became really sensitive to the changes in their faces. But now you may be reading it in your baby who's just angry because they're hungry and babies get angry when they're hungry and they're not angry because they're hungry because of you. And so, you know, reflecting on that narrative and learning to reframe it and actually what I call deframe it. So not even fully engaging in it, but in a most mindful way, compassionately looking at it and saying to yourself, it's okay. Like This is the story that's playing out in your head right now. And you're not there right now. You are here and you are safe. And then, you know, what do I need to do to calm my nervous system? And like, now I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to have a cup of hot tea or, or ice water and so on. This is a random question, but I'm just curious. Let's say somebody is like in their 20s or their 30s. They just became a parent and they start doing this reflection on their own childhood, their attachment, and they do have attachment trauma from their childhood. Obviously, you can work on it with them singularly, but is it common for people whose parents are still alive like to work on that together, or is that not a thing? I think it's a beautiful question. I have had a handful of patients through my practice who over time, as we work through we do it with compassion for that parent too, right? Often for the parent's parent, I should say. It's generational cycles. So as we come to see how they felt in the relationship and maybe the things that were scary to them or hard for them, we may also try to reflect on the story of their parent. You know, what do they know about their grandparents? And it may help them come with compassion and we hold the both and I didn't receive what I needed. And Neither did my parent, which made it really hard for them to give it to me. And so sometimes it's really beautiful and and fortunate that we get to invite, you know, mom's mom or mom's dad into for a handful of sessions and work through or talk through some of these things. It's not always possible, you know, but it isn't impossible. I have done it. And when we can repair at that later point, it's one of the most beautiful things, but we can also often, or I should say, and we can also often repair it within the person. So sometimes simply their ability to understand that their parent may have been, you know, maybe they had a depressed mother and that parent may not have been able to get out of bed and be excited and come to their dance recitals and how abandoned they may have felt. They may, with the compassion of what was going on with their parents, 
feel less like it was their fault, feel less like if only they were, insert the blank, then maybe their parent would have been better. They come to have compassion for themselves. There's nothing I could have done and compassion for their parents. They were doing the best they could with what their life was and with what happened to them and so on. And that kind of gets into the whole concept of parents now, you know, this term, it's kind of trendy, but I like it, of being cycle breakers. You know, with reflection, we get to change the story with our children. The last thing I wanted to talk about was, because obviously people are going to be like, okay, how do I foster a secure attachment with my child? So I thought we could just, or you could just tell us like, not like tips, because it is such a, like, it's more complicated than that. But what are the basics of fostering a secure attachment with your child? Oh, Renee, there's yes. no top 10 way. <laughs> but not, this is not a prescription. Okay, people, this is, yeah, just like, because whenever people ask me that, I, I don't really know what to say. I'm like, and they're like, really, you did training in this, but it is a complicated thing. Well, that's why I came up with these, you know, over practicing for about 20 years and working with adults, reflecting on their own attachment, working with children in play therapy, then working with mothers and parent infant work. I was like, I, I needed my own kind of template of how I would psychoeducate or provide education around what I was trying to explain. And so I have come up with those four R's like we talked about. And so we'll use them as our template and we'll go through them know quickly. So the first is reflection and reflection can occur in the here and now. Reflection can occur in a therapy. Reflection can occur in many different ways. And so, you know, one of the ways I like to think of reflection is that you are constantly in some ways after something that happens, it doesn't sit the way you want it to. For example, you know, you were really rushed in the morning and you felt like the whole half your day, your heart was beating really quickly and you were not really present and people were saying hi to you after you dropped off your kid at school and you couldn't really take in their existence and what is wrong with me? And we say, and we kind of get all negative. Some of us may on like, I, I, I hate being late and we may with compassion reflect what happened. You know, what is it about being late? Where did that come from? Is that a part of my own childhood? Did, you know, and then maybe, you know, here I'm telling a story, but maybe when I was growing up, my parent would get really anxious and overwhelmed or I would struggle always feeling like I needed to be on time so that they didn't get upset, right? And so when I'm running late, I go into that sympathetic nervous system. I kick into high gear, like I've got to go. I get really anxious. I'm in panic mode because I used to feel really panicked as a child. And so when my kids are running late, it triggers me. And so part of the reflection is just learning. It goes back to what we were talking about before, learning our triggers. And they really matter because they'll play into the relationship because if we're not reflective on them, then we'll be yelling at our kids to hurry up. And now our kids are going to continue that cycle, right? for example, in a really, I know, overly simplified way of describing it, but you catch my drift. Then there's recognition. So that's reflection. Recognition is that whole narrating, seeing what's in front of you. This one I often describe to people, think of it as a mindfulness exercise. And if you don't know what mindfulness is, it's the idea of intentionally focusing your attention on one thing with compassion. So you're intentionally focusing your attention with compassion on your child. And so you are present compassionately present, recognizing what you see. And you are not necessarily engaging. It's a state of watching and wondering. Oh, I can see you trying to tie your shoes. That's hard to tie them. You're watching them get frustrated, right? It's hard to tie them. <clears throat> you're getting frustrated. And you might show them, mirror to them what they're feeling. And you're simply observing. You're not, let me do it for you. You're trying not to. You're not getting in there necessarily. You're compassionate with the emotion. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? You know, yes, you know how to tie them. They don't know how to tie them yet. Yes, it's hard, isn't it? And then you may offer that kind of moment of, can I help you? Would you like my help to tie? Can I show you how to do it? Right. And so then we do it. So that's that recognition. We want to be using the recognition on them and on ourselves. So for example, there might be a moment where they're tying their shoe, but you're still trying to make your coffee. 
and you haven't had your coffee yet and you're exhausted and you might be quietly saying to yourself, I'm tired today. I really need to have my coffee. They need my help getting themselves dressed, right? You do talking to yourself. It's okay. I can pour my coffee and then I will help them with their shoe. So you're recognizing yourself as you're recognizing them. It's present with me and my needs while I'm present with you and your needs. And sometimes that will come to a rupture. Here's the third R. Mommy, I can't do it. And they throw their freaking shoe. Okay. So now you go, don't throw your shoe. Okay. So you are in beautiful recognition mode, but now they throw their shoe and you get angry. And now you have a rupture. It was a competition of needs. You needed a few more moments. You were a little slower that morning. They needed your help. They felt unseen. Maybe you weren't narrating enough because you were kind of into the coffee dripping and you needed to kind of let that coffee happen. So here's your repair moment. You yelled and you say, I'm sorry, mommy's tired this morning. I didn't have good sleep. You want me to tie your shoe. You need my help. I wanted a coffee. I was really tired. I'm going to help you now. Let me take a sip and I'm right there. So what you're doing is you're naming, you and I are separate. We had different needs right now. I had a different feeling than you did, and that's okay. The last kind of subtitle I'm going to put is you won't always repair in the moment. Sometimes you'll say, don't throw your shoe, and then you'll put the shoe on angrily, get them in the car, drop them off at school, and feel like crap all day. That's okay. I mean, it's not okay that you felt like crap all day. That's okay that that happens. When you see them and when you remember and when you've had time to settle that nervous system, you've gone for a walk, you've breathed, you've talked to a friend, you've reminded yourself that it was a rough morning and you really needed your coffee and it happens and I'm human and I matter too. And you pick them up and you say, hey, mom got a bit angry this morning when you threw your shoe. And you might even add the boundary. We can't throw our shoes. Throwing shoes can hurt people's bodies. But I understand you were angry. Next time when you're angry, what can you do? And we might talk about it. So that's that repair. So the four R's are reflection, recognition, rupture, and repair. And know that you can do those over time. They're not always done in any given moment perfectly. But you have moment to moment to moment. And it's a collection of moments where you are doing those things sometimes a little bit delayed, that allows a child to build a sense of safety and trust in you. And it allows you to build a sense of competence and confidence. And that allows you, most importantly, to delight in one another, which is what the attachment relationship is about. Perfect. I love that. And I love like those examples are very common, like those things happen. And that's like the perfect example of how that all plays out. So thanks for that. Lastly, because people are probably going to ask, do you have any resources that you recommend to parents when it comes to attachment, like books or anything like that? I really like, I make jokes about this and and one day maybe I'll get to talk to him and say this. I really like the power of showing up and he talks about the three S's and Dan Siegel and You know, I actually had the four R's at the same time or before. I don't know when he came up with the S's, Tina Bryson and Dan Siegel, but I respect those S's. So there are three S's and he talks about them, I think, as see, soothe and safety. And so, of course, they sound very similar to the R's in some way or they're based on the same ultimate needs because these are the things we know from attachment science. So that's a great book. If you really want to get into understanding what a child needs, it is written though from the child's needs standpoint, right? What do we need to do? How do we show up for our child? And the part that I'm trying to add to it, I think is how do we also need to show up for ourselves, right? It's both. So who writes about showing up for both mother and baby together, mother and child together? I really don't know. So you're writing a book is what you're telling me? I am writing a book. You are? (laughs) But yes, Yes. (laughs) but it will take some time. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) But I really like, you know, there's also this book, Parenting from Within, John Kabat-Zinn. And he does talk about that idea of reflection, you know, reflecting on our past and how we were parented. It's an old book, but it's a good one. And then there's The Birth of a Mother, which really talks about all the things that can occur to a mom in her mind and all the way she changes written by Dan Stern, also an older book, but a phenomenal one that really focuses on the mother's mind and the ways it changes and identity and so on. And then I run a number of workshops where I obviously get into much more than I could in the podcast attachment and 
uh, have an attachment workshop as, as well as a mindful parenting workshop, both which come from that attachment theory lens. That's my next question. So where can people find you and where can they sign up for these workshops? Because I'm going to put all these links in the episode notes. So they can find me on Instagram at Dr. Cutler. They can find whatever offerings I have going on on my website and or I'll sometimes put them on my Instagram, depending on my relationship with Instagram that month. So that's um, Tanya Cutler, C-O-T-L-E-R-P-H-D.com. And I guess I should put in parentheses, you know, stay tuned because this is going to shift. I am opening a clinic and so there will be a different name, but I will be noisy about it. And so it will be, I'm sure, easy to find it once it shifts over. I love that. So excited for you, like your own clinic in Toronto, like so fancy. With two partners, it will be great. And it will very much focus on relationships and all the things we talked about today. I love it. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking with me about all this stuff. This is hands down probably my favorite episode. So I'm really excited to get it out. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Renee. Are you looking for a podcast that'll make you laugh? You came to the wrong place. That's not us. That's not us. (laughs) Well, it is. We are a husband and wife who chat about raw, real relationship topics. like sex. Like money. Like marriage and kids. But we're not afraid to talk about how your newborn baby probably isn't as cute as you think it is. If you're in need of entertainment while you're driving to work, because that sucks, we can join you in the suckage, kind of like being in your ear. Not physically. So if you want to laugh, come check us out. Come check us out. Brought to you by the Laughing Couple Podcast. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.